advice and opinions expressed by the hosts of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. Dr. Doreen Grandpichet is the Dr. Doreen is an expert in autism. Doreen Grandpichet. Dr. Doreen Grandpichet. Dr. Doreen Grandpichet. Dr. Doreen Grandpichet is a visionary in the field of autism. Now you can ask her questions on Ask Dr. Doreen. Good morning. I'm I'm so busy watching the opening. I lost track of who I was and where I was. Uh, so thrilled to be here with all of you. Uh, hi, I'm Shannon Penrod. You're watching Ask Dr. Doreen on the Autism Network. And there she is, Dr. Doreen Grampichet. Good morning, Dr. Grampichet. Good morning. Good morning, Shannon. Good morning, everyone. Lovely Good morning. Uh, it's great to be here. Good morning to Michelle, who's already written in and said, can I email? And yes, you can. Someone else already just emailed me, so I'm, I'm monitoring the email. Bonnie has said, good morning. Good afternoon. Excuse me. Uh, Nada is saying hello from Holland. I love that. And Ka says good morning as well. So welcome to all of you. If you want to be a part of that, uh, make sure that you write into us. We're live right now on Facebook, on YouTube, on Twitter, and about a dozen other sites that our fabulous producer Traven is going to show you in just a second. And Sarah, I just got your email. So thrilled that you're here with us. Uh, so I also want to let you know that this show, while we're live right now, it podcasts and it's available later on today as a download pretty much wherever you get your podcast. It's a free download, which we're really happy to be able to bring you. We are considered here the number one autism podcast worldwide. And that is a very lovely thing for us. And we want to thank all of you for making that possible. And we hope that you will share, like, review, and just if you know somebody who might need this information, let's say that you're watching on Facebook, just pop their name into the comments and then they will be able to find it. It'll send them, send them a message and say, you've been, you know, mentioned in a comment. And that way, I love it when friends do that to me because then I, I drop, I go, what is this? Why, why is my name in the comments? But it takes me right there and I don't have to think about it. So lots of different ways uh, for you to watch and connect with us. Uh, and I, I see that somebody's saying they're having trouble finding us on YouTube. Um, but it, know that if that happens, because sometimes different platforms have different difficult days, if that is happening to you, head over to Facebook because you can find us there. We're strong on Facebook right now. Good morning to Amanda with her blue hearts and Renee and Elvira are here. Uh, Michael is here from Philly. Uh, Leticia is here and uh, we've got lots of questions coming in, Dr. Grampichet. So I'm going to let Dr. Grampichet just say hello for a minute. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Yeah, I see the questions coming in, Shannon, like rapidly. So we're excited to be able to read some of the questions and help you guys out today. Yes, wonderful. And I do have to mention uh, that Dr. Grampichet is a true expert in the field of autism. She's been working in this field for more than 40, yes, I said 40 years, working with all kinds of individuals uh, from very young babies up through senior citizens. She is, I think, uh, I, I say all the time, the preeminent expert in our time. I, I have to find better words for that because I don't think that adequately describes how I feel because not only is she somebody who has the experience and the know-how, but she has the compassion. She is widely known in the field, controversially so, for looking at individuals on the spectrum as individuals, 
which to me sounds like, you know, why can't we have that from all of our professionals? But apparently that's a reach and a climb, not for Dr. Graham Pichet. She's been doing this, as I said, for more than 40 years. But she not only looks at those individuals as individuals, but looks at each family unit as an individual unit uh, to see what they need, what they're looking for, and how to best help them to get to their best lives, which is really remarkable. So we appreciate her and thank her. For, that is why she we named her the Autism Advocate of the Year, because she is so uniquely fabulous at this. She donates this time to answer your questions, so I'm glad that you guys are writing in. Uh, we're going to start with Michelle this morning, who says, good morning. Uh, I sent some information. I feel way better. I got uh, one, one month, one week off. I needed time to take care of my mental health. I last wor worked on January 26th, and I'm going to work on Tuesday, March 22nd with a bunch of a medical appointments and dentists. I wish um, I wish to fix my chart, nasty flaw for life or death situations on all platforms. Uh, oh, <laughs> they said there's no backspace. Um, okay. her, her medical charts at some, I'm not sure where. Yes. Um, Okay, so I'm not sure what your question is. Um, okay, but you're looking for a place to report doctors to HR and CEO staff. Well, that's a pretty interesting thing because I think we all, this is information we all need to have, right, Dr. Grampichet? When things aren't working out for you medically, and help me, Michelle, if I've gotten it wrong, but that you're meeting a lot of obstacles, gaining access to your medical care. Um, so I know, uh, everybody I know is going through some version of this right now. Maybe we can share some tips and tricks, but as someone who, uh, is, is uh, a PhD, uh, Dr. Grand Pichet, what, what advice do you have for someone who is coming up against difficulties in the medical system? Yeah, unfortunately, I think Shannon, it's been the last couple of years, right? Where pretty much everybody has first of all i mean across the globe we all the medical needs have increased right so we're all kind of uh, having additional issues and want to access our doctors our providers get some feedback from them get some help from them and so and they are pretty overwhelmed and also i think uh you know burnt out like let's just face it i go anywhere you go people are burned out over COVID issues and uh, especially healthcare, I think would it would be true to, to say that about healthcare providers because they've been on double speed, I guess, for the last couple of years. So first of all, I think the uh, it's important to understand that because everybody is, we just need to uh, be a little bit more patient and calm with things. Um, I'm, I know for a fact that a lot of people are trying their best, they just are, uh, burnt out, you know, they're tired and they've done everything they can. Now, that being said, it is very, very frustrating and annoying to not access your records or not to be able to tell someone that you, what you're trying to get across. So I find that it's always best to pick up the phone and call someone, you know, we've all become very used to online and uh, email, text, etc. But calling, I think, is an easier way to solve problems because you can go back and forth and figure out exactly what's going on. And just make sure that when you call, it's not on a day when you're particularly 
upset or annoyed because that usually doesn't get us to move forward. It's always a little bit more helpful if you're calm and have the time and you call and then someone can walk you through the process. Absolutely. And just like in the field of autism, I think it matters what words you say. And here's the fun part. And when I say fun, I'm saying that sarcastically, um, that each medical company has different words that they use. But um, I find that if you do what Dr. Grampy Shea says, get on that phone, make yourself your favorite beverage, um, put on music that you like and, and have it ready to mute when, you know, put your phone on speaker so that you're, when the whole time is not miserable for you. Um, but when you talk to the person, keep saying to them, first ask what their name is and write it down and then use their name repeatedly. So if they say, this is Jeff, you say, hi, Jeff, thank you. I'm so happy that you're going to be helping me today. Jeff, I'd like to speak to the person who is the patient advocate. And if he says there is no such person, then say, well, is there a, an ombudsman um, that deals with who can I talk to and use these words? I'm having difficulty accessing my care. I need to speak to someone. If you feel comfortable saying I'm someone with a disability, I'm having trouble with your system. But once he but keeps saying, Jeff, here's the thing, because he will know that if you complain, you're going to use his name okay. and he will work harder for you. Um, these are the little tricks that we've learned along the way, but, and ask him, what is the name in your company? What is the name of someone when you escalate patient issues and keep saying, if you, if you feel comfortable saying I have a disability and your system isn't working for me and I'm having trouble accessing my care because those are things that are actionable legally. Um, and that they won't want um, to have happen, but keep using his name. And I find that it, if you might, it might take an hour, it might take an hour and a half, Jeff may hang up on you, but then you call back and you re replenish whatever your favorite drink is, <laughs> continue playing the music. If you need to put on your favorite TV program and have the remote there so you can mute it when they finally pick up the phone. But um, this is, this is the horrible truth of our healthcare system right now is that you have to be a good advocate for yourself. And unfortunately, sometimes you don't feel up to it. If you need to ask someone else, could you please do this for me and sit next to me? And can you go through the tree for me? And then I'll talk to them once we get there. It's horrible. Um, but I, I can do it for somebody else. I often can't do it for myself. Because you're just um, emotionally invested in it, right? Right. But, but I, you know, and so I have a friend that we sort of trade these things. There are certain things that I can do that she, and, and, and things that she can do. I can't do spreadsheets as you well know, Dr. Grampuchet. It's not my thing. And she can do a spreadsheet like a dream, but I can do customer service things. So we'll trade. I'll say, I'll, I'll make three customer service calls for you. If you will take care of the spreadsheet for me. And she goes, okay. <laughs> and we trade, right? So, you know, see if there's somebody in the family who maybe can help you to do that because you need to be able, and yes, when there's a mistake on an app, Michelle, it's, it's like, you know, forget it. You, you know, you're, they might have your middle name wrong and you will, <laughs> they will put that on your death certificate if you don't work hard enough to change it and find the person who owns the company. So in any case, I, I'm sending you hugs, Michelle, and hoping that you can work it out. I, I want to move over to a question about teeth um, that we've had a viewer who's written in and said, my, my son's teeth forms plaque quite often. It's mm. because he doesn't let me brush it properly at night. I hate exposing him to dental clinics more often than I need to. Um, and 
they said that uh, they want to know, does everybody have the same issue with them, with their kids not wanting to brush their teeth? Uh, she feels that the dental offices are full of toxicity as they use a lot of different chemicals. So that's part of why she would like to limit the number of times that her child goes. But let's let's talk about how traumatic going to the dentist office can be, too. So if our kids are creating plaque and they don't want us to brush their teeth and they don't want to do it themselves, a lot of times we get a little paralyzed. Dr. Grandpache, I'll hold my hand up. What can we do? Well, I, this is coming from someone who absolutely hates the dentist. Let me just tell you, like, I will take any medical procedure over a dental procedure. Just, I don't know why, but I've always had a thing with dentists. So what I do, and I think, and I did this with my children as well, and I did it not just with the dentist, but this is a good practice anyway, whenever you want to do something that is a little bit difficult. So what I want to do is first talk about like some things you can do to make the visit to the dentist better or to the doctor. And then I want to go back and talk about just the whole br teeth brushing process, because that's, you know, reduces your need to go to the dentist, hopefully. So both of those are just, just think of it in terms of it's a behavior you want to increase. So whenever we talk about you want to increase the behavior, what do you have to do? You have to increase reinforcers for that behavior, right? So whether it is a matter of going to like, for, I'll give you guys an example. When I used to take my kids to the doctor, pediatrician or dentist, whatever, uh, it would always be, I would make it a really, really fun trip, right? So that, let's just start right there. It would be, hey, we're going to have a great time today. Today is the best day. We're going to do this, you know, and then I would make sure that after, like when we go to the visit itself, we'd have plenty of um, activities with us. So when you're, the worst time I think for kids, I mean, and, and it actually classical conditioning works backwards. So if, if they have it, if they've had once a, a bad experience, which obviously just any kind of injection is a bad experience for a child, you work it backwards and before you know it, they have learned subconsciously they've become conditioned to hating even the word doctor getting in the car to go to see the doctor you know being in the waiting room all of that it just all of those completely benign things become very negative right because they mean oh next i'm gonna go get a shot or something so what i used to do was i used to just like really pour on the reinforcers right and like make sure that after the doctor every time we'd go downstairs you know in most medical buildings there's a little pharmacy or store downstairs and we definitely would go there and buy some junk like whatever whether it was like little toys candy whatever it was now that's just the kind of the easiest way to do it but sometimes with our kids they develop real phobias that you kind of have to work through. And whenever I'm, I'm talking about a phobia, it's not enough to force your child through it and then reward them afterwards for finishing it. You actually have to work on overcoming the fear, which means you would, for instance, uh, get your child in the car, go to the doctor's office and not see the doctor, right? Just have a positive experience with, let's say, the waiting room. Um, and another, you know, like, so each phase of seeing the doctor, sometimes with our kids who've had like extreme trauma from a doctor's visit or hospital visit, we even will practice the whole process of injection 
uh, using like a fake syringe. So something like a pen that, or just an empty syringe, right? Where you just go like this so that the child realizes um, that it's not, they just become more familiar with it. And the more familiar you become with something, the less fearful you are. So there's a lot of things you can do to kind of like reduce the fear of the actual visit, exposure and reward, breaking it down, exposing the child to each step, and then giving lots and lots of reward, which also means removing demands from the rest of the day. So you could make it a special day whenever a child needs to do a doctor's or a dentist visit, and they can skip school, and they can get all these goodies and all that sort of stuff. Now, going back to the whole concept of trying to avoid going to the dentist, it's the same basic idea, right? So we want to make it so that the experience of brushing teeth is pleasant for our, or as pleasant as possible for our children because they don't realize the long-term consequences of, you know, cavities. That's just way too far down the line for them to realize I have to do this in order to not suffer three or five years from now, right? So what we have to do is, first of all, make the bathroom a very positive environment, put some toys in there that the child cannot access otherwise. So they would have to be in the bathroom, like same kind of idea, Shannon, as the toilet training. Yeah. Maybe get your child one of those uh, vibrating toothbrushes that also play music. There's a lot of toothbrushes nowadays where they light up, they play a song and you brush your teeth until the song ends, which I love that for kids. They didn't have them when my kids were young, but, and, and make sure that you buy like a toothpaste that has a good taste and then make a good big deal out of like, oh, look how beautiful your teeth are afterwards and like take pictures or something like that so that it's more of a game. Now, remember, a lot of our kids have sensory defensiveness to the inside of their mouth. And if you do it gradually, if you teach them, if you give them control, actually, like rather than stick a toothbrush in their mouth, hold their hand and help them do it. When they have control over it, it's a little bit more pleasant because it's not as, I guess, um, shocking or intrusive. And they start doing that, manipulating and using vibrating toothbrushes inside the mouth is actually fabulous for apraxia. Like it is something that will help the child uh, be able to enunciate and produce sounds better. So there, if as as you're doing it, it, this is think about the fact that it's something that also helps your child's language skills. But you have to do it gently. You have to keep in mind that our kids are very sensitive inside their mouths. And and by the way, other things that you can do during you know aside from when you're brushing teeth is just help like things like chewing gum. Um, those types of things also help the child become less sensory defensive in their mouth uh so and sometimes you can actually put the toothbrush in the mouth don't turn it on just put it in for one second then put it in for five seconds over time you're kind of shaping this behavior and don't forget of course reward 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 absolutely we've got a lot of comments coming in amanda says that she found that using a non-foaming toothpaste helped 
uh, like Dr. Bronner's. Um, also, Amanda says that there are apps too that you can put on. And if you don't have the vibrating toothbrush that plays the song, there are apps. Amanda, if you have a favorite one, put it in the comments because I'd love to know yeah. more about that. Parker says dentists are a lifesaver. I still have trouble brushing my teeth properly. Having a younger sister studying to be a dental assistant does help. I'm right. sure that does. But then a follow-up question. Sarah says, thanks uh, for answering my question, but what about the dental instruments? I've heard that they are made of aluminum and my son's tests show high toxicity. So this is another concern for me, putting the aluminum instruments in his mouth more often. And what is your thought? Can I, can I just say that I just did a bunch of research on this because I was looking for a new Good. dentist and we live here in Los Angeles and there is a big movement here. I don't think it's just in Los Angeles for green dentists. And mm -hmm. I don't know what the word is, Dr. Grampiche. Maybe, you know, it's like bio something dentistry and it's a little, it's, it's more holistic and they are a little bit more careful about what the instruments they put are in what things they do fillings with. They're wildly expensive and most insurance doesn't cover them. Um, but there's one guy that I found here in LA that before he'll see you, he has you do a blood test to see what you're allergic to before he sticks wow. anything in your mouth, wow. which you know, I, I think a lot of people would say is really excessive, but if you're somebody who's really reactive to things, I could see myself doing it. Absolutely. And why not? And, and, you know, also it, it, it takes a little bit of research, right? Every town that you live in finding the right person, but I, first of all, I don't know if the instruments are made of aluminum. I, it's, I don't, I don't know if they are. I don't I, think they are, but I don't know. I'm allergic to nickel, so I'm always looking things up. And everything that I found said that there's surgical steel. Steel, exactly. That's what I yeah. thought. So, but, so the other thing is, um, you know, call around. There are actually dentists who not only are familiar with uh, all of these issues of, you know, allergy and reactions, but they're also very familiar with autism. I mean, I did several trainings that over the years for groups of dentists who wanted to learn sort of how to manage and how to make the experience more positive for an individual with autism. So I know that there are dentists who have that training and you definitely want to try to find someone who does understand a little bit about the sensory sensitivities associated with autism. There we go. And I, I want to say with the dentist, I found, and you know, some dentists will have TVs in their, in their offices. And I yes. think it's so incredibly helpful to have, even if you go with a dentist who doesn't just to take an iPad, place something on there for your child while they're having the procedures done. And it is much, much, better because the child is somewhat distracted. Okay. Amanda wrote in and said, hum, H-U-M, which is put out by Colgate, makes great apps. It shows the kid in the app um, and the teeth sections directing them where to brush and provides them with visual rewards for doing it. That's fantastic. Um, and Koss says, I take my son to a pediatric dentist and she understands special needs and works amazingly with my son. Absolutely. We love hearing those stories, you guys. Guys, I want to go to a question that Bonnie sent in and it's in many parts. So I'm going to have you start answering and then I'm going to scroll to put the pieces together. Okay. Uh, Bonnie says, my son is eight and he's going to an inclusive school with a shadow. 
uh, and he screams when he does not get his way. He's found a new way to communicate what he needs by yelling, help me. What can we do so that he stops this behavior? Thank you. I know that she goes on to say that he is functionally verbal, not conversational yet. And I know that there was another place where she said he squeezes the, I want to get it right. Um, he also squeezes the shadow's hands and my hands very hard when he is upset and frustrated. So, mm. but yelling, help me. I mean, isn't that ingenious? Like he's learning, uh, but learning how to get him to use that only when appropriate. Uh, what do you think, Dr. Gramsci? Yeah, so, the, you know, and this is the kind of stuff that our kids learn, unfortunately, and when they observe, let's say, another child. This is a child in an inclusive school with a shadow. He's probably seen a child yelling, help me, and everyone dropping everything they're doing and running over there to help the child, right? So I think as, as difficult as it might be, uh, this is, it happens with kids where they, uh, will use expressions or they will, uh, you know, I, what's that story you tell children about lying, right? When they're oh, the, the boy who cried wolf, wolf, right? Yeah. So it's similar to that in that sense. But I think what you have to do at this point, Bonnie, is that you just have to treat this, the screaming and the yelling of help me. You need to extinguish this right now, as difficult as it is, because it is a very adaptive functional behavior. You do need to extinguish it because he's applying it to situations that are not real. So the entire team who works with him, and the most important here is when our kids go to school, it's so difficult because there's now a whole different environment where you don't necessarily control all the contingencies. So you need to make sure that everyone who is with him at school, the shadow, the teacher, the resource specialist, everybody is in agreement with this because it's going to take a while unless everyone does the exact same thing, which is when he screams or yells, help me, and there is no reason. In other words, he's doing it because I think she said he doesn't get his way, right? He does it when he doesn't get his way. Uh, that needs to be ignored. And uh, this, the situation just needs to continue. In other words, uh, let's say he wants access to something and he's not getting his way. Do not give him access to that object, just as if he didn't say it as if he didn't say it or as if he's not screaming. Now, it's gonna get worse before it gets better. That's called an extinction burst. And that is when our kids do a particular behavior because they're trying to get your attention, for instance, and you don't attend to it, what's happening in their mind is, wait a minute, this behavior used to get attention. It's not, let me just do it a little bit more extreme. Let me be louder, let me be more intense. And when you ignore that, eventually it goes away. Now, once it has gone away, and once he realizes the screaming and the yelling help me are, it doesn't work, then it's important to teach him to use a similar or even the same uh, phrase when there actually is a need for help. And that would be a scenario where you actually teach it. So for instance, you will bring a box. This is how we teach help me, which is we will start with a container that is very difficult to open. And the child brings you the container and says, help me. 
and you will help them open it or they want to reach a place and you teach them how to so we don't necessarily we don't start using help me as a rescue phrase until much 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 later we use help me as just an aid phrase i need help with this object or i need help to reach something or you know i need help to manipulate something in my environment first and then the child realizes okay this is the this is how what help me means when the child needs attention we teach them different phrases for that right so and of course a lot of times unfortunately our kids it's not just that he needs attention but our kids learn to escape the situation that's like the biggest function in school because in school if you have a tantrum or something it is very likely that they're going to take you out of the classroom and that actually becomes a reward for the child it's like yay all i had to do was scream and they would let me go to the playground and you know that is always the wrong thing to do i mean i know it's very very hard in school because we have other kids there and the classroom and it becomes disruptive but one of the things that really really is has a negative effect is when a child screams screams and then they're taken out of the classroom because our kids are smart and they learn hey every time i want to leave and go outside i'm just going to scream so hopefully that helped to answer your question bonnie it starts with literally not allowing him to gain access to the thing that he wants when he screams or yells. Wonderful. And I, I got to say, um, just an extra thing, just from the parent's perspective, is if you're going to do this kind of um, intervention, I, I would say for a hot minute, make your circle a little bit smaller and let everyone in on what you're doing. Yeah. Because very, if you're at the playground and your child is going, help me, help me, and you're ignoring them, you're going to have a host of other problems. Um, and, and if you have Aunt Betty over for tea and you don't tell her, listen, at a certain point, he's going to start yelling, help me just to move a teaspoon and yeah. you're not going to respond to that. Then Aunt Betty's going to give you a lecture, which is not what you need in the moment. Yeah. So, so make it smaller for a period of time and, and let everybody know, even if you have to print up little cards that if somebody says, why aren't you helping your child? It says, my child, you know, is having a problem right now, yelling, help me inappropriately. And so we're with the help of experts, we're doing an intervention so that people will crawl off of your spine <laughs> because people get all judgmental. It's just super, super extra fun. Uh, I want to move to a question here from Yasmin, and it's another one that's in a lot of different um, parts here. So stick with me. Um, she says, hello, so happy to have you both. And we're so happy to have you too as well, Yasmin. I have a question about my 11-year-old son with autism. He's obsessed with toilets and hand dryers. When we go out, he wants to use the bathroom more than once. And if we um, go to different places, he wants to use all the bathrooms available to him. It can be hard because some days I just have enough time to run in and run out of a place. And if he can't use it, he'll get mad. Uh, I think she said more, but oh, he can... He can hold his pee for a very long time. So I know sometimes he does not need to go. I let him go at least once when we go out, sometimes two times. He draws the toilets and knows the different brands. When we sometimes don't let him go more than once, he'll get mad and say, I'm still going to use the bathroom or I'll go use it by myself. Uh, what happens? He says it in a threatening kind of way sometimes. It's very hard to just go out 
to more than one place. He says he loves the toilets and the hand dryers. How can we help with these obsessive things? Uh, and thank you in advance. Sure. Great question. So I, that's a great question, Yasmin, and I'm sorry that you're going through this. It's always tough when our kids establish some sort of obsession with an object and it could be any object and they will do it all the stuff that you just said they will try their best to get to it and then draw it talk about it etc so i'm going to suggest two things one is um you know uh, and shannon you and i talk about this a lot whenever there's a issue like this <clears throat> and we're in the middle of daily life it's very, very hard to deal with it. Cause as I think Yasmin also said, like we have other things to do or we're busy or whatever, it's yeah. hard, right? Yeah. But put aside time to specifically deal with this issue. For example, uh, I don't know, every day after school, we're gonna stop at a place that has a bathroom. And for the purposes of working on this, um, or even just once a week or whatever it is. So, so that you are not, you don't have other constraints. You're not focused on, oh my gosh, I got to get shopping done or, oh my gosh, I got to get back home or whatever it is. And you literally will go to the place and you will not go to the bathroom and he will get mad and that's okay. And it's just okay. It's because before you know, and then you will put him back in the car and you will go home and you will ignore the fact that he's mad. And I don't know how big he is or what kind of a, um, you know, fit he can throw if he's really, really angry, but hopefully it's manageable and you can still walk around a store. The minute he starts talking about the bathroom, just go back in the car, let go, let's go home. The point is that he needs to realize that he will not, you, he will not get his way by becoming mad. And that's exactly what is happening here is that a lot of times our kids realize that if I make a big enough fuss, they will let me have what I want. And that's not what you want to do right now. If he, you are absolutely allowed. Initially, I would just say no. And you, he is absolutely allowed to go to the bathroom. Let's say if, if you think, oh, you know what? It's been, we've been out here for an hour or two hours and he should go one time, which is probably normal in a two to three hour excursion, then please do take him. Do not let him play with stuff in there. Do not let him spend excessive amount of time in there. You just go in there, do your business, wash your hands, dry your hands and come out. And gaining control over that, you can use a timer. You can certainly use a timer um, that he needs to be out of there within, let's say, three minutes or five, whatever is typical. You should time your, uh, what you think is the appropriate amount of time. And that's it. And a lot of times, the reason I like this question is that we often do things because we're afraid of our kids getting mad. But it's okay if he gets mad. It doesn't matter. You're trying to teach him things that are okay and not okay. Now at home, he's still going to be probably obsessed with drawing that. I would get him to start drawing a whole bunch of other things and see if you can broaden his uh, thoughts to other types of objects. Now that's one thing, right? That's the behavioral way to deal with it. 
a lot of times our kids have such incredibly strong obsessive needs that behavioral way is not enough. And it's almost like you're constantly there, nonstop thinking about this thing that has become their obsession. And that's when I want you to go and talk to his pediatrician, get a referral for a psychiatrist and consider SSRI medication, serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which help when we have obsessive compulsive types of needs. And what they do is they will just basically reduce the edge a little bit so that he's not 24 seven thinking about that particular object. And I say this as a behaviorist, but also as someone who's had over 40 years of experience with kids on the, on the spectrum and some kids have such serious obsessive needs that it almost becomes impossible to get them to pay attention to anything else. And this medication, which is not that it's not harmful. All it does is allow your own neurotransmitter serotonin to remain in your nerve endings and your synapse longer. So it's not like it's introducing a foreign thing to your body. It's just helping your body use its own neurotransmitter better. And with that, you just calm down a little bit and you are less likely to panic and freak out when you don't have access to that one thing you're obsessed about. She That's does it. tell us that he's on uh, sertraline right now. At okay. The yeah, great. So I'm glad that you have a physician. You need to talk to them because these kind of obsessive things can be controlled with increasing, decreasing, changing meds, SSRIs in particular, some work and some don't for depending on the chemical shape and the individual who's trying it. Wonderful. Aisha has written in and said, hello, thank you for your work and for what you do. My son is nine years old, diagnosed with autism since he was three when, and we moved from North Carolina to the Philadelphia area and mm -hmm. we are looking for ABA therapy. Do you have anybody that you recommend any facility that you recommend in the Philadelphia area? I don't, but there are, I mean, you know, we could go back, I guess, and talk about, you should, you should just look online, right? And, and there will be now, fortunately, hundreds of ABA providers uh, all over the country. I would say, you know, and Shannon and I have written about how, how you identify a good ABA program. Um, and I just like the, the initial and Shannon helped me remember some of the things we wrote, but I would say the most important things you're looking for are is what is the level of training that their behavior technicians receive, assuming that all of their supervisors are BCBAs, BCBAs are master's level people who are board certified questions you should ask are how much time is the BCBA actually going to spend with my child? How much training and what training do the behavior technicians working under that BCBA receive? Um, what is the philosophy of the organization in regards to intensive therapy and recovery? Those are some of the more important questions because if it's an agency that thinks ABA should be done at two hours a week, then it's, I'm not going to recommend them. I'm just not going to recommend them. ABA is done intensively because there's a ton of stuff to teach each of our kids. It's done a different amount for each child, but the fact that it is the, the best type of teaching uh, for our kids, there's no question about that. And therefore, the more of it, the better. 
So those are some of the things. And also find out if they have high turnover, if they have a lot of therapists, because you need to make sure you're, you're, when you have a schedule with your child, uh, they are able to actually provide hours during the hours that you sign up. A lot of ABA therapists struggle with providing the therapy they promise you. There you go. And we have written an article about this, Dr. Grampiche and I, and it's going to be available to those who subscribe to our channel. I promise you by April 1st, I'm going to have that ready. Um, right. And so it will go to anyone who subscribes to the channel, even if you've done it um, a way long time ago. So that's what we're getting that ready for. Uh, I also want to say, Ka has said, my son um, just diagnosed three months ago at age seven. Uh, and even though it's been obvious, he is autistic and has severe ADHD. Now we're trying to get him services. It's a challenge. The school isn't providing ABA or OT to him one-on-one. -on -one. The medical side says he can't get the amount of services needed as the school has to do the school behaviors, but they aren't. What can I do to get him what he needs and has been robbed of? And Ka, if you can remind me, what state are you in? I don't yeah. remember. Or are you in Canada? Because it makes a difference. Wish it didn't, but it does uh, where you're at. But Dr. Yeah. Grampiche, initial thoughts while we wait to hear from Ka? Yeah. And this is the really unfortunate business of people just throwing the ball at each other and saying, hey, it's in your court. Um, you ideally, Ka, what you're going for is services from both sources. Ideally, you will want to call an IEP and in the IEP, I think, did they say the child is nine? Not, uh, uh, nine or seven. She says she's in California though. So Kai, you just won the lottery. Yeah. Yeah. California, <laughs> California people are pretty familiar with, with ABA and the services and there's a lot of funding for it. So what you do is you get your school district, first of all, to get on board and do an IEP. Once an IEP is done, there, the discussion becomes who's going to actually provide the services that are in the IEP. And realistically, most of the time, a teacher cannot be responsible for those goals because they're busy dealing with 20 other kids. So that's where you fight with the district and you request a, uh, an aid for your child to specifically generalize skills that are needed to the school environment. It's not going to be a whole lot, to be honest. Schools have managed to throw everything at health insurance and they take very little responsibility. But I will tell you, the, the parents that make the biggest fuss still do have a lot of hours funded by districts. So please don't hesitate and go for it. Like really go for it. And if you have to get an advocate or an attorney, uh, watch our show with Bonnie Yates. I'm sure she can give you a lot of feedback, but you should get legal representation if you need to, because school districts will 99.9% .9 of the time actually give in and give you the funding that you're requesting in the end. But it's going to be limited to school hours, right? And um, what you really do need for your child, the way I look at it, is you need hours after school and on the weekend where your child will get one-to-one -one ABA in home or at a clinic. And then the stuff that they learn there is what the aide will be working on generalizing during the school. So for you, and, and that of course is just find an ABA provider 
uh, and your health insurance covers it. And then contact the, uh, talk to the ABA provider, get a program going for your child, which focuses on the specific areas you are concerned with, and then ask for the two groups to meet the aid and the ABA providers so that they're on the same page. But you honestly, being in California, you should be able to get coverage around the clock. You just have to fight for it. And they will tell you all every step of the way that you're not gonna get it. You are gonna get it. I have so many parents that actually receive both of those services funded and they just have to be very tough about it. Yeah, and I said that Ka had won the lottery because she's in California because A, California has more access to services and more people in California that are in those service things have been sued and, and are afraid of being sued. And I'm more familiar with them. So Ka, rather than go through everything, because there's so many things that are available to you, if you will shoot me an email, I will happily walk you through a bunch of things that will help you to get started. And he's seven, Dr. Grampiche. I went back and looked. He's seven years old. So there's still a lot of services that are available to you. And in the state of California, there's financial help available to you. So please shoot me an email. You may already have done, but send me another one and let's have a conversation so I can help you to short track it so that you don't waste a year trying to figure out what thing to do, where, because there, there's my email, shannon at autism-live.com. I try to be responsive. If you ever email me and I don't get almost immediately right back to you, it means it's been lost somewhere in the crush. Don't be afraid to email me more than once. I apologize if sometimes, you know, things get past me, but I never do it deliberately. Feel free to, as Nancy says, be a dog on a pork chop. Email me and keep emailing me until I respond to you. Okay. Uh, Eddie, Edie, I'm one says that their 10 year old won't poop on the toilet. What can we do? Yeah. So it's, uh, you know, it's one of those things with all, a lot of kids, not just kids in, in, on the spectrum, but a lot of kids develop a fear of the toilet because they, they wonder, they don't know what's down that hole <laughs> and they wonder and they worry that either they're going to be sucked in or, you know, where do things go? Where is this mysterious hole that sucks things out, you know? And so they get very scared and worried. Other kids are also scared. I mean, some kids, their sensitivity to sound and the flush makes the toilet already a very fear provoking object, right? So uh, I often suggest to parents to use to get the toileting process really under control on a potty, you know, like on a plastic potty that can be emptied. You could, if your child is getting older, you can also use the adult ones that are used for seniors. But the concept is that the child needs to see that their poop is there and then they need to take it and actually empty it so that they have some control over it. That is sort of the process of just trying to acclimate them to the toilet. At the same time, they need to be able to sit on the toilet and stand up, not necessarily have to have a bowel movement, but just become familiar and reduce the fear of falling in. So you kind of have to identify, you know, is the child afraid of falling in? In which case those little uh, toilet seats that are for kids are very helpful. They're also very comfortable. 
Um, you know, they also have like decorations on them that a lot of times make our kids a little bit more calm about it. So acclimate your child to the toilet seat, but the actual act of going, having a bowel movement, use a potty where the child can actually see their poop and empty it. And I find that that really, really helps. And then gradually they become so comfortable with the whole scenario that they start using the toilet appropriately. Yeah, we, you know, we had to go through all this because there, I, I think, first of all, the movie Finding Nemo, uh, while it helped us with so many things, I think it freaks a lot of kids out because there's the whole of flushing of the, you know, the thing down, the, the fish down the toilet. And they're like, ah, they, they're afraid that they're going to be like the fish and go into yeah. the sewer system. Yeah. Um, but I will say, and I want you to take just a second to talk about the reinforcer for, for pooping on the potty, because for us, that was the thing. You, you guys sent us to the toy store. Remember when we had big, huge toy stores we could go to back in the good old days? Uh, you guys sent us to the toy store with the task to find the toy that he wanted the most. And we would always, in a toy store, I know it's like, how can you even do this now? Like bigger stores, like a Walmart or a Target, you know? But we would have him in the cart and we would put toys in the cart and he would play with it for a few minutes. And then we would take it away and put something else in or put it in the basket. And whatever he came back to like four or five times or reached for four or five times, that was the toy that we got. So they, at the time they had Lego nights that were these things that came in a canister. And so you guys told us to get a couple of those and boy, he wanted that. He wanted us to open that canister. He like jumped up and down and he asked for it a million times and we stuck it up on the towel bar that was opposite the toilet. And we said, as soon as you poop in the potty, then, then, and oh, he did a dance and he like, and then he got on that toilet and he would, nothing would do, but he was going to make a poop in the toilet so that he could have that night. And then he would have the rest, as soon as he pooped in the toilet, he had the night for the rest of the day. Then the, then the night went back in the canister. It went back up on the towel bar and he would get up in the morning and he would go night. And I would say poop in the potty. He would, and man, he was like a machine. He was going to make that happen because he wanted that night that badly. Um, And that, and I would never have thought to do that, but you guys had us do that. That's not necessarily what's appropriate for all kids, Dr. Grampy Shea, but there does need to be some sort of a meaningful reinforcer for doing it, right? 100%, 100%. And thanks for saying that, Shannon, because I focused more on, I think, the kids who have a fear of pooping in the potty and you focused more on, on just the process of getting the child to poop on the potty. You know, like it's a very different thing. If it's not fear oriented and if it's just a matter of getting the actual process, like getting used to this is where I poop and I need to do this and I'm not going to poop in my pants, right? So the process of potty training then, and in any case, any behavior that takes place that is a positive behavior, there needs to be a very motivating reward. Uh, A lot of times we will tell parents to even put the TV in the bathroom. I mean, you need to make sure that this is highly rewarded. And remember, it's not gonna be forever that you're gonna have to like give them extreme reward. It's just in the beginning when a behavior is being learned, there has to be a lot of reward. Then over time, you can reduce the reward, use the intense reward for other new behaviors. Um, But initially there has to be a great motivation and that motivation is built by the value of the reward. 
Absolutely. There we go. Uh, we got to get to this question. Sadaya says, how to deal with escape behavior? It could be anywhere, any situation. Mostly the escape behavior is that they are not interested in, and that could be a learning experience where the caregiver wants to teach. I'm not hundred yeah. percent sure where we are in that, but, but escape when, when, when there's lots of times when we see escape maintained behavior where, where somebody wants to get out of doing something. I yeah. think a lot of, a lot of us think that, you know, it's just elopement, but I engage in escape maintained behavior. It's tax season. Again, I'm going to do everything I can to, I will clean my house rather than do my taxes. Right. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah, listen, I'm with you, Shannon, as you know, and you are one of my biggest uh, SDs, discriminative stimulus for writing this book that I'm working on. <laughs> but yesterday I engaged in escape behavior and I used the excuse, it's Valentine's Day, I'm going to be kind to myself. I love it. So I we, love all, it. we all do escape tasks. There's no question about it. The way we go about escaping those tasks is very important because our kids learn often and i was reading another uh one of the previous ones that we answered i think was talking about i think it was bonnie who was saying that her son yelled because he he couldn't get a sack of sand to be moved you know and i was thinking well that's like he's trying to get access to something right but escape is exactly the same a lot of times our kids will just scream because they want to avoid a situation and this is what Sadia is talking about. And Sadia, all you have to do is reduce the, the learning, make the learning experience a little bit more fun. So make sure it's a shorter instruction and bigger reward, meaningful reward, guys, not rewards that mean something to you, but rewards that mean something to your child. So you're going to make it a very short learning opportunity, like maybe one minute, followed by a big reward. And then if he uh, screams or tries to run away, you block it, you don't allow it. And so what you're doing is you are reducing the demand, increasing the reinforcer and helping shape model the behavior. So uh, come, you, know, you ask your child to come over, do one very simple task, get a huge reward. And that should work. If they try to escape that minimal activity, you prevent them from escaping and you continue to reward their activity that they engage in with you. You start with as little short of a duration of an activity as you need to. Uh, but the important thing is making sure that you do not allow the child to escape because when they escape, they learn you know, I can just hit, scream, yell, tantrum, and I'll escape the situation. Um, if you can avoid that even for 30 seconds and then reward the non-escape behavior, you will gradually then be able to build on that. So reduce your baseline, make it as little as possible so that it's successful, and then start building on that. Uh, you're mute. Sorry about that. How uh, Dark Angel wants to know, how can I help my son to play with others? It is a nightmare on the playground. He's pushing other kids and he will be four in one week. Happy birthday early. So could you read that again, Shannon? Yes. How can I teach my son to play with others? Okay. It's a nightmare on the playground. He's 
their kids and he will be four in one week. And that's why I said happy birthday. That's nice. Yeah. So playing with other kids, you guys, is a very, very complex task. It's not something where we just throw the child in there and they are supposed to figure out what to do. It just doesn't happen that way with our kids. So you need to do a number of different things. One is, first of all, one on their own, teach them content, teach them skills. That means how to play on playground equipment, how to play with indoor toys of different types. So the child needs to be pretty proficient with, you know, all the things that are on a playground, as well as pretty proficient with objects, toys that his age group will usually engage in or play with. And that means with you, with himself, with you playing, they should be good at it. And then you invite one other child, a neighbor, a cousin, uh, someone, a friend of the family, one other child to come over. The other child should hopefully be uh, maybe a little bit older, maybe more, much more patient, willing to assist. And then you moderate, or if you have a behaviorist, they moderate the play session. So we do, and, and basically that means teaching our child how to verbally interact, how to pay attention to the other child, how to take turns. Each of these are individual skills that they need to learn. Um, how to allow the other child to choose the toy or the activity, uh, how to, if they are verbal, how to uh, say positive verbal statements to the other child, how to expand the toy based on the game, based on those verbal things that they say, hey, let's do five more minutes of this. Hey, should we do that now? Those types of sentences and this whole thing could take six, seven, eight months, just these steps that I told you. And then after the child has mastered those things is when you can now just take them to a playground and let them go off with other kids gradually. And still, you should still be there or someone should still be there to help moderate, right? I don't recommend taking your child when it's super busy. Our kids get very, very overwhelmed with that. And sometimes they get you know, shoved around, could get hurt because they just don't know what to expect. Even the sound, imagine like if they are sensory sensitive, the activities in the playground could be overwhelming as well. So I really recommend trying to gradually expose your child to calmer environments, like go at different times when there's only a couple of kids there and, and make shape this behavior. Otherwise it becomes extremely overwhelming for our kids. Wonderful. I am so sorry that we are out of time for questions, but I'm going to make a pledge to the teaching lady who wrote in something about a yeast belly and about how you get your child to eat vegetables. And also to I am one who's written in about how, what to do during a job interview to be successful. Um, and they talk about masking. So we want to talk about that. I'm going to pledge that we are going to start the next show with those two questions. So I'm guaranteeing you, we're going to start the next two show with those two questions. I do want to thank. Oh, Shannon, you froze. 
I'm not sure. Oh, there you are. You're back. Am I back? Okay. Uh, I was saying, I also wanted to say Renee and Elvira um, were saying, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much because you answered their question on TikTok. And I want to let people know if you can't wait the week for your question to be answered, you can always send in a question to ask Dr. Doreen on TikTok and she's answering your questions. And that's kind of super fun in a super fun format. And you can see the other questions that she's answered there. And, and here's something super fun. If you heart the other questions that, that she's answered there, it makes it so that more people find her on TikTok. We just spread the information. We're just spreading it from corner to corner around this globe. I also want to tell you guys, oh, have you lost me again or am I there? No, you're there. Okay. It says I'm not, but that's, so tomorrow on the show, this is big, big news, you guys, that we've not said anywhere before this, but Andrew Duff is going to be with us tomorrow. If you have watched the hit show on Amazon, as we see it, he plays Douglas on the show. He's the, the good guy in the autism group that keeps asking her out, that she keeps saying no, and that we all fall completely in love with Douglas. So Andrew is going to be with us. Here's a very fun thing. Andrew was on the show nine years ago, uh, right after he graduated from college and was getting ready to go out into the world. He was doing a one-man show about autism. And in the show, he played himself as a child, himself as, a, as an adult college student and played his parents. It ripped me to the core of my being. I've never forgotten him because the show was so amazing. He's been working as an actor and now he's one of the stars of As We See It. He's going to answer all kinds of questions for us. You're not going to want to miss it. I think it's going to be one of the most important interviews. I'm getting chills just thinking about it. So make sure that you're here for that tomorrow, uh, same time, same channel. Dr. Grampichet, thank you so much for all of your answers and your expertise. We just adore you. Uh, and please check her out on TikTok, everybody. We will see you net, uh, tomorrow and next week for Dr. Grampichet. Until then, give your kiddos a hug from me and one for you too. Bye-bye for now. Bye.